This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. In the untouched regions of the forest, the kōkako runs through the treetops feeding on leaves, flowers and fruit. The South Island kōkako, with its distinctive orange wattles at the base of the bill, hasn't been sighted in many years and may be extinct. A situation the blue wattled bird of the North Island may find itself in unless its habitat is preserved. Its delightful call includes a variety of rich organ and bell-like notes. Community or chaos, we can construct and nurture community or fall into chaos. Over the next hour, Marvin Hubbard hosts conversations toward creating a fairer, more equal society. Community or chaos, made possible by support from the Peace and Disarmament Education Trust. Well, friends, um, welcome to Community or Chaos. In spite of lockdown, we're having our interviews. We're just pre-recording them a day ahead of time. Today we have Jeff Bertram a from the Institute of Governance and Policy Studies at Victoria University. And his research areas include climate change policy, environmental economics, New Zealand economic history, income and wealth distribution, regulatory economics, including analysis of excess profits and anti-competitive practices with reference to the electrical industry and the development of small island economies. Welcome to Community Chaos, Jeff. Hi. Jeff, what got you interested in electric power provision in New Zealand? Well, I... I, I probably need to, to set some personal background here. I grew up in the 1950s as a kid in Palmerston North. And um, in those days, uh, the New Zealand government was engaged in constructing the, uh, the network of state hydro stations and the uh, transmission grid that was electrifying the entire country. It was a project that began in the 1920s. Um, it had been rolling on for some decades. And in the 1950s, um, the government was... Uh, through the Ministry of Works, constructing dams on the Waikato River, uh, elsewhere in the country, developing big South Island dams. And uh, in, uh, as I say, in the 1950s as a kid, one of my abiding memories is the fact that we used to have power cuts on quite a regular basis. Um, and they were inconvenient, and we all had to put candles on and uh, run little kerosene stoves and so on. But we understood why they were happening, because we were all part of uh, a collective enterprise to catch up with the demand for electricity. New Zealand was electrifying very rapidly. Uh, Electric appliances were being put into houses all over the place. And we knew that that demand was tight um, and that the the government was going as fast as it could go to build the dams and other generating capacity to get the supply sorted out. And indeed, by the 1960s, they'd achieved that. And it was a huge collective enterprise, and we were very proud of it. Um, and we felt part of it. Uh, as, a, as a kid, uh, on summer holidays, my family used to go to visit the new dams as they were constructed on the Waikato River. We did a tour of the dam, and, and they were our 
assets. Uh, they were part of our collective solution to a collective problem. Uh, we, it was socially controlled. It was part of uh, a mixed economy in which uh, the state had a constructive and positive role to play as a, uh, as the owner and operator of co- what, what you could call commanding heights in the economy. So right from that time on, I've had a a sense of both ownership of the electricity system as a ordinary New Zealander, um, but also increasing distress at the way in which, in recent decades, the system has has been changed and has evolved away from what was our collective vision of the 1950s. So to jump on uh, a couple of decades, uh, I came back from overseas in 1976 uh, into the era of the Muldoon government, um, became involved in environmental causes, um, and we were very quickly confronted with the Think Big program, uh, which involved not only two of the last really big hydro construction pro- projects at uh, Rangipo and then on the Clyde, um, but also a whole bunch of other projects which seemed to be or were argued to be related in some way to um, what the government described as a surplus of electricity. And so the Aramoana aluminium smelter, which w- was proposed at the beginning of the 1980s, was to allegedly to use up the electricity from the Clyde Dam, in other words, to somehow justify the construction of the Clyde Dam <coughs> on the basis of uh, major industrial developments initiated purely and simply to mop up the electricity from that dam. And to me, the economics of that and the, the general common sense didn't stack up well. So I found myself writing in the early 1980s a detailed um, description of the New Zealand electricity system, uh, a criticism of the, particularly the Aramoana smelter proposal, but other uh, related uh, discussion of how the Think Big program was going to come to bear on electricity. So at that stage, I was well-versed in the detail, the engineering, the uh, the economics of the electricity system as it used to operate under the New Zealand Electricity Division. Uh, so when in 1986, the uh, the Longy government, uh, under Roger Douglas driving the, the program of neoliberal reform, embarked on corporatizing, privatizing the electricity system, I was uh, I had a, not only a ringside seat, I had a long background of having been studying the sector before. So that's uh, how I came into the field. And uh, so I've kept ever since watching the evolution of the reform program and keeping up with the data. That was interesting because actually I arrived in Dinin from Wanganui just in time to protest against the Moana. Hmm. And uh, what's happening with the smelter in uh, in recovery, you really question why we should have that when we don't have braxite, we don't have the resources they're using, we just have the electricity. Could you um, tell us what you felt when you heard that in August 8th, one of the coldest nights of the year, we had electric blackouts in a large portion of the North Island, and vulnerable people could not turn on their heaters or lights. And we've been told over and over again that we have one of the most efficient and profitable electric systems in the world. What went wrong? When and where did the rot set in? Well, um, let me pick up two of those words in that question. Um, efficient and profitable. And as an economist, you know, I'm well aware that there are markets in which 
efficiency and profitability go together. That was Adam Smith's great insight in the wealth of nations, that uh, pursuit oh, of self-interest under competitive... Early efficient. Yeah, well, pursuit of, competition, pursuit of profit under, under competitive conditions can lead you to an efficient outcome. Pursuit of profit under uncompetitive conditions leads you into chaos. And um, and that's what's happened here in, in New Zealand. And so you have to unpack that question. You said we have one of the most efficient and profitable electricity systems in the world. I'd start with efficient. Until 1986, we had one of the most efficient electricity systems in the world. We had a Rolls-Royce system. It was designed by very good engineers. It was built to a very high standard. It was operated to a very high standard. Uh, it had a goal of providing an essential service to the population of New Zealand on, a, on the least cost basis. That uh, The electricity was supplied out to households as part of uh, our welfare state um, social contract. Um, it was an enormous success. And now we have one of the most profitable electricity systems in the world, but it is less and less efficient because the profitability, the profit motive has steadily eroded the efficiency of our system. And it's done it in several different ways. And, you know, just I'm sure we're going to come back to these. Uh, the big thing to look at uh, from a general economic point of view is what's called productivity. You, every year, the statistics department publishes the profitability statistics for various sectors of the New Zealand economy. And most parts of the New Zealand economy over the last 30 or 40 years have improved their productivity in a sort of gradual way. It's not a great product and not a great record on productivity, but at least most sectors are positive. The electricity sector as part of a, a larger chunk called electricity and gas, uh, but that's just gas pipelines. It's not the whole gas supply thing. Uh, basically, that's electricity. Uh, it's 30 percent less, less productive now than it was in 1986. It is one of the only two sectors in the New Zealand economy whose multi-factor productivity has gone downhill steadily since the neoliberal reforms of the 1980s. And it's now down 30%, over 30% over the period of the reforms. So that, that aspect of efficiency has gone out the window. Second thing that's gone out the window is the integrated uh, operation of the system. It used to be um, operated with generation and transmission put together with, to, to schedule the generation accurately and then at the lower at the retail level lines operation and retail um, and the management of um, you know, the sale and management and servicing of appliances used to be all put together as well uh, that's all been broken up for reasons that we'll come back to i'm sure uh, and that has reduced the efficiency of the system because coordination is much harder now than it used to be in the old system um, and thirdly the um, one of the real uh, things that goes wrong when you have have monopoly elements in a market that's not adequately regulated um, is that what's called rent seeking becomes the dominant activity of the people who are in positions of power in, in the system. And so there's an enormous amount of activity in the electricity sector now that is purely rent seeking. It's to do with self-aggrandizement of individuals and groups um, within the system rather than the pursuit of a collective public interest. Uh, and I just go back to where I started. The collective public interest can be looked after fine by profit-seeking entities in a competitive environment. 
the opposite is true in an uncompetitive environment, and that is, in a nutshell, what's wrong with the New Zealand electricity system today. As an economist, could you say that we might have increased our productivity in the economy even if we hadn't had the economic reforms? Countries like Germany and most of Northern Europe didn't have the radical reforms that New Zealand did that. Yet their probability probably increased faster than ours. Yeah, I mean, the, the, um, the neoliberal reform project that Roger Douglas and Ruth Richardson forced through in New Zealand was, uh, was disastrous for the New Zealand economy on the whole. Uh, we had nearly 10 years when the, new, when the economy simply stopped growing in its tracks. And the, the promise that the, that the neoliberals made at that time was that this was pain in the short run for gain in the long run. The promise was that uh, after, the, after we had weathered the state, uh, destroyed protected industries, deregulated everything, uh, turned finance free, uh, somehow the economy would exhibit better growth and higher productivity. And that hasn't happened. We, uh, after 10 years of a dead halt, we went back on to precisely the same rate of growth and productivity increase as we'd had before the reforms. So we're 10 years worse off than we otherwise would have been uh, for no gain. It, it, it really wasn't a great, a great success. Which interests and people have benefited from the electricity reforms? Oh. Right. Well, here we here we get a, get to a, a whole list of uh, the inside players who have benefited at the expense of those of us who are outs on the outside. Um, the um, the first beneficiaries, uh, I have to say, were the neoliberal ideologues, the um, the the people who in the nineteen eighties um, got found themselves in positions of power, both. Um, politicians headed by Roger Douglas initially and then by Ruth Richardson um, and officials from the Reserve, the Reserve Bank and the Treasury, especially the Treasury, um, who who forced the pace on reform in a direction that they found ideologically uh, good. They hated the large state, so they wanted to shrink the state. Um, they wanted to privatise state assets. They wanted to deregulate because they hated regulation. Um, and that ideological package uh, was successfully forced through. And so those guys uh, are still preening themselves for their success uh, in, in imposing their own ideas. The second group are what I call the looters. Um, that's the, the opportunistic um, and sharp-eyed entrepreneurs who moved in very rapidly once the New Zealand government took its hands off the controls. Well, in some cases, well, weren't they one and the same? For instance, the first secretary treasurer right. became the first CEO of telecom had negotiated. negotiated no, 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 no. no, not the secretary of treasury. No, uh, one of the treasury officials who negotiated. Uh, yeah, the the first the first uh, CEO of telecom and of Electricorp was uh, had been the deputy governor of the Reserve Bank. He was certainly one of the leading lights in the program. So he was a bureaucrat. Initially a bureaucrat, <laughs> and then, but then became a, a very leading business figure. And similarly, I mean, various of the officials who were, in, who were driving the reform from inside government departments in the 80s moved on to be extremely successful um, entrepreneurs in various parts of the private sector 
um, it did very well out of the reforms. But the looters, the group that I was talking about just now, are a wider group than that. They're the um, people often coming from, from the business community and often from outside New Zealand who saw the chance um, as privatisation was forced through uh, to pick up the public estate assets on a re reasonably cheap basis and turn them into a gold mine. And so uh, across a whole lot of sectors of the New Zealand economy, we saw that looting take place from 1988 through to the mid-1990s. The railway system, for example, was completely asset stripped by, uh, among others, um, Warren Buffett's um, Berkshire Hathaway outfit in the States. The electricity sector was systematically asset stripped during the 1990s by a whole bunch of overseas uh, opportunistic companies, as well as by um, local entrepreneurs. So those people made huge capital gains, uh, basically by picking up publicly owned assets and then later turning them into gold mines and then flogging them off to, to other investors. Uh, the third group who I'd, who I'd say benefited from the reforms were the, the, the managers and financial engineers and consultants who are yeah, only pursuing their own self-interest, fair enough, but it is a rent-seeking situation um, because there were huge fees paid and huge salaries came to be paid to people who operated in the electricity sector, both operating the reforms, doing the restructuring, and then running the restructured companies, uh, which now have extremely highly paid cadres of managerial staff uh, running the companies, doing the PR work, uh, handling the regulatory um, negotiations and so on. Oh, and, and the fourth group that's, that's benefited from the reforms, I have to say, is the New Zealand government. <laughs> the irony of it is that having, having triggered this wave of monopolistic profiteering, uh, the New Zealand government has retained ownership of half of the big, three of the big generators um, and has, of course, continued to pull in big tax take from the very high profits of, of all the companies in the sector. So there's a billion dollars or so of revenue that comes pouring in every year to the Treasury from these uh, deregulated, restructured uh, electricity suppliers, and that's effectively uh, a tax take that's collected individually out of the pockets of electricity consumers. And then the householder and small benefited from these performances. I can't, I can't the average householder and, and small. Yeah. Oh, well, well, no, here, here we come to the last group that I had in mind of beneficiaries, and that brings me to those who suffered. Um, the, um, because once the, um, once the companies came onto the market and you could buy shares in them, uh, an awful lot of New, Zealand, New Zealanders put their savings into buying shares in the generation companies and in some of the lines companies. And so there is a whole bunch of New Zealanders who actually collect a bit of their income from the monopoly profits that the companies collect from consumers. Uh, and so the group who've, who've suffered most among the householders of New Zealand are those who weren't well enough off to buy themselves shares in the company so that they could share in the dividends. Um, and have, all they've had to do is pay the, the increasingly high price of electricity to sustain weren't them. They, weren't they the largest group? Oh, yeah, they're by far the largest group, and they're losers. Uh, so uh, the, so the um, largest group of news, electricity users actually lost a lot. 
Yes, they've lost a huge amount. The, uh, the not only that the the price of the electricity that residential consumers use has doubled uh, for no re- for no reason whatever. Uh, it didn't have to go up like that. Um, but also a loss of agency. You've lost the um, the democratic control we used to have over local over local electricity authorities because they were local government entities and with elected boards in charge. We've lost control of the big central system because the state has stepped back from exercising social ownership and control over that sector. Um, we've uh, and we've been uh, urged by government into an enormous waste of time and energy, the, the, what we call shoe leather cost in economics, um, by stupid campaigns like the What's My Number exercise, which has been driven by the industry and the government to pretend that somehow by shopping around, you can save yourself a lot of money. And so everybody should be shopping around. And so a large number of people driven by that propaganda um, have shopped around like crazy. They've worn themselves out going from company to company, comp- trying to compare deals in an opaque market, and for no long-term gain. I mean, you can you, you could switch from one provider to another and save a little bit of money. Uh, next thing you know, the prices are up again, and you'd have to switch again. You could spend your life uh, switching from company to company for no long-term gain. And quite frankly, uh, that, in my mind, has been the greatest and most damaging imposition that the industry has put on New Zealanders, just forcing them into this stupid uh, process, which amounts to blaming consumers for being exploited. That reminds me of climate change. Oh, yes, very much so. Not corporate or the government that's responsible, it's the individual responsible. You see the same thing with the dairy industry's response to, to nitrate pollution. And, and and dirty water and so on. Gee, why why don't you wash <coughs> your car properly uh, rather than let's try to deal with the essential problem? So yes, it's a very common tactic. Um, the electricity industry has has uh, has used it quite ruthlessly. Well, a bit of music and then we'll carry on. Huh? And we'll be playing a a Woody Guthrie song called. Roll on Columbia about the big electricity product projects under Roosevelt and the New Deal in America. Green Douglas fir where the waters cut through. Down her wild mountains and canyons she flew. Canadian Northwest to the ocean so blue. It's roll on Columbia, roll on. Roll on, Columbia, roll on. Roll on, Columbia, roll on. Your power is turning our darkness to dawn. Roll on, Columbia, roll on. Other great rivers add power to you. Yaki Moss Snake and the Clicky Tattoo. Sandy Willamette and Hood River too. Roll on, Columbia, roll on. It's there on your banks that we fought many a fight. Sheridan's boys and the blockhouse that night. They saw us in death, but never in flight. Roll on, Columbia, roll on. Roll on, Columbia, roll on. Roll on, Columbia, roll on. Your power is turning our darkness to dawn. 
roll on, Columbia, roll on. Our loved ones we lost there at Cole's little store by fireball and rifle a dozen or more. We won the Mary and soldier she bore. Roll on, Columbia, roll on. Remember the trial when the battle was won. The wild Indian warriors to the tall timber run. We hung every Indian with smoke in his gun. Roll on, Columbia, roll on. Year after year we had tedious trials. Fighting the rapids and cascades and downs. The engines rest peaceful on Mamalusa. Roll on, Columbia, roll on. Roll on, Columbia, roll on. Roll on, Columbia, roll on. Your power is turning our darkness to dawn. Roll on, Columbia, roll on. At Bonneville now there is ships and no locks. Waters have arisen and drowned the rocks. Shiploads of plenty will steam in the docks. Roll on, Columbia, roll on. On up the river at Grand Coulee Dam. Mightiest thing ever built by a man. To run the great factories for old Uncle Sam. Let's roll on, Columbia, roll on. Roll on, Columbia, roll on. Roll on, Columbia, roll on. Your power is turning darkness to dawn. Roll on. Well, that was Roll On Columbia with Woody Guthrie. We're talking with Dr. Jeff Merchant, who's an economist who's done a lot of work on the uh, costs and productivity of electricity. And you can podcast this by going to oar.org.nz, then going to podcast, and then going to community or chaos. Oh. Jeff, could you comment on the fact that the Electricity Authority issued a preliminary decision stating that Meridian Energy pushed up power prices in in December 2019 by spilling water from its South Island dams that could have been used to regenerate power and lower wholesale electricity prices. Can you talk about this? Sure. I mean, that's just a standard bit of monopoly behavior. Um, textbook monopoly, you, if you cut, can constrain the supply of a good, you can drive up the price and make a profit on it. And uh, this is absolutely standard behavior for firms in New Zealand that have some, have some monopoly power. Um, and the, the thing that you need to notice is not so much that they're doing it. You expect monopolists to do this stuff. The the, uh, the two things you need to notice about that exercise um, is that this time they got caught, so that was a big test of whether we have any regulatory uh, checks and balances to to prevent this sort of behaviour. Um, and the answer is no, we don't. The electricity authority get, got out a West bus ticket, bus ticket, and slapped Meridian over the wrist, and then moved on. Uh, the electricity authority is nowhere near being a regulator. It's basically in the pocket of the industry and spends more of its time being a public relations promoter of industry interests than it is uh, a regulator uh, for the general public. And there's a reason for that. Um, To understand how that's come about, you need to go back to the establishment of the authority 
back in 2012, 2013, when it replaced the old Electricity Commission. Um, and one of the first things that the new authority did when it came into being uh, was to enter into a memorandum of understanding with the government that said, uh, the authority has no regard to equity issues. In other words, it is not the authority's business to consider whether something is fair or not. That's not their concern. They are only concerned with, quote, efficiency, unquote. And fairness, equity, is the business of the Ministry of Economic Development, as it was. It's now the Ministry of Business, Innovation and Employment, uh, which exercises no regulatory authority, whatever, in, in, in terms of fairness. So th the first point is there is no regulator. Uh, this is a, this is an unregulated industry with monopolies in it. And the second thing to notice is that um, the New Zealand Parliament uh, has legislated to make monopoly profits legal. Uh, until 1984, until 1986, sorry, um, there was a, a Commerce Act in the New Zealand statute books which made it illegal to take monopoly profits. And companies that could be demonstrated to be taking monopoly profits were subject to criminal sanctions. The 1986 Commerce Act swept all that away um, and made it legal for companies to take monopoly profits unless the Minister of, the, of, of, of Commerce of the day decided to regulate them. And of course, that, that made it a political decision and politics can be influenced very strongly by industry lobbying. And so uh, the, um, the generation part of the, of the electricity sector, which is where Meridian is, uh, has never been subjected to, uh, to any regulation under the Commerce Act. So, so there we are. It's an unregulated monopolistic industry. So uh, that spilling of water, uh, what they call an undesirable market situation, was just the tip of a huge iceberg. How do you feel when you read about people, often people in poor health, having their electricity turned off because they can't meet the bill? Well, I feel angry about it, I suppose, but not surprised. Uh, again, it's the standard behavior of an unregulated monopolistic, more, more strictly speaking, oligopolistic um, industry. Um, it stopped cutting poor, cutting sick people off once there was a big fight in the media about it. because. It became politically embarrassing that the industry was cutting off people from their life support. And so the industry made the necessary adjustment for public relations purposes to stop doing that as, as conspicuously as it had been. But it's still running uh, all over the country. There are, there are poor people who are on prepay meters that are extortionate in the rates they charge. And, um, and lots of poor households who simply are uh, cut off from, from supply and have to just survive as best they can. Uh, that doesn't please me. I don't think it's consistent with the idea of electricity as an essential part of modern life. The way you describe the 1880s and 90s reminds me of Russia after the fall of the, the Soviet Union and the corruption there in some regards. It was the same set of ideas driven by the same group, but essentially the same international set of ideologues as we had in New Zealand, um, and with many of the same consequences. In many ways, I mean, we can be thankful that the New Zealand economy uh, is a great deal more resilient than the, the Russian one. So uh, faced with the transition from, uh, from the old Stalinist system to the uh, extremist deregulated uh, capitalist system, the, the Russian economy crashed and burned. It was huge. Dest uh, destruction and deindustrialization. New Zealand didn't suffer anything like 
as much as Russia did, um, because we had a had a much more resilient system from way back. The mixed the mixed market economy uh, had a lot more built in uh, ability to come through that sort of uh, set of changes than the former uh, Soviet economy had, and. Um, and you know, we we just uh, our economy stood still for for ten years while a lot of companies, went, a lot of manufacturing, and some farming was driven out of business, and a lot of people went through a mass unemployment phase, which broke the unions and drove the labour market into a lower wage configuration. So there was a lot of damage, but it was nothing like on the scale that Russia suffered. Could you comment on how commercial management handles dry years? <laughs> Well, um, we've just been watching them doing that. Uh, dry years is part of the New Zealand reality. This country has uh, a hydrological arrangement, a hydrological fate, if you like, that every now and then the rain doesn't come, the dams don't fill up. Um, and as we go into winter and the electricity demand goes up, we become increasingly dependent on things other than hydroelectricity to supply our electricity. Um, we've always known about this. And... In the days when electricity was being developed under state control, uh, it was provided for by overbuilding, putting in as much, putting in excess capacity that gave us a margin of error uh, to cover dry years. And one of the arguments that the neoliberals made back in the 1980s was that this was inefficient in the sense that um, carrying excess capacity meant that you'd incurred the cost of building stuff that you didn't use except at very rare occasions. And uh, and so the argument went: this commercial managers uh, would have a, a a keen eye on an efficient response to this, and somehow by putting commercial management into the system and privatising a lot of it, we would get a better way of handling dry years than we had before. So the first test was in 1991, um, and the old system got us through the dry year th- that year because we had actually built excess capacity. We had an oil-fired power station up at Marsden Point called Marsden A, another one at New Plymouth. We had we had a whole range of fairly clunky, rather high cost, but definitely, you know, in existence capacity that we used to get through that dry year. Uh, the commercial management of the what was then the Electricity Corporation in New Zealand lost no time as soon as the dry year crisis was over in decommissioning those those plants, rather than mothballing them and keeping them in reserve so that when another dry year came around, we would have the thermal capacity to meet it, they actually destroyed, physically um, smashed the machinery uh, in those stations to make sure that the next dry year would be a big profit time, not a, not a, not a regular supply time. And indeed, that's how it turned out. Ten years later, another dry year, and we had no spare thermal capacity in hand. Um, blackouts loomed. Uh, one of the big uh, retail companies that didn't have its own generation went, was driven into bankruptcy. Um, it was a it was a pretty unpleasant experience. So, the last twenty years, uh, what you look for is have the commercial managers been building in the excess capacity, without which we aren't able to get through a real dry year. The answer is no. Uh, they've had the consented hydro schemes on the on the the Wairau River and the, and the Lower Waitaki, which they've never turned a sod of, of, of dirt to build. They've had wind farm consents, including a huge one over near Dannenberg that's never been built. Um, so coming into 2021, which is another dry year, lo and behold, 
lack of capacity. What are we going to do? Burn a heap of coal in the Huntley Station, which is our last resort. Uh, that's the result of commercial calculation over the last 10 years when these companies have decided that it wasn't profitable to build excess capacity for a dry year. Um, so, yeah, I mean, um, the, the private market, the commercial mindset does not have a solution for dry years. But the government uh, system did have one. Yep. Could we build excess capacity in wind farms and hydro? that didn't use carbon. Uh, yes, we could. Um, and th the important thing is not to rely on the, on, on the big monopoly companies to do it. Uh, they're driven by their own self-interest and they will build only what they consider to be profitable. Aren't they legally required to play, put their stockholders first before the public benefit? That's right, and they do. They put them, they don't, actually, I don't think they put their stockholders first. They put their bonuses and short-term profit goals before the long-term interest, because many of these managers will be gone in five years' time when, when the, the chickens come home to roost. So decisions that they make are driven by very, very short-run calculation. Their stockholders, in many cases, would prefer to have a long-run uh, view, but, uh, but their managers don't have a, a long-run view. That's the structure of incentives. But coming back to whether we could build these things, um, you always have to think who should build these things. Now, Wind and solar are completely different technologies from hydro and, and large-scale thermal, thermal fossil fuel plants. With hydro and with big coal and, and gas and oil plants, you need scale. There are big advantages to doing them on a grand scale. And so you need big organizations, and that means that you know, the elements of monopoly are always lurking in the horizon. Wind and solar are not not technologies that require large scale. Every farmer in New Zealand could have a couple of turbines up the back of the farm hooked into the system. It's not, wind, not rocket science. Every household in New Zealand could have panels on the roof uh, hooked up to, uh, to a battery in the garage. You know, this is, this is completely doable. And the only reason why we haven't had a huge rollout of a campaign to electrify New Zealand on the basis of ordinary New Zealanders getting into the action and, and making, by the way, um, a little bit of personal dough in the process and, and while making all sorts of lifestyle choices along the way. The only reason we haven't done that is that the industry has blocked it, has blocked it the government has refused to, to contemplate it, and the, um, the ostensible regulator, the electricity authority, is, is bitterly opposed to rooftop solar and small-scale um, development. Um, it's just a it's a policy setup that's hostile to allowing New Zealanders to electrify their own country. Is this part of what you call the democratic deficit? Yes, very much so. We we're here now. We've had these reforms for nearly thirty years. Where should we go from here? Well, the first thing I would want to do is to reassert democratic control of this uh, of this industry. It's it's an out-of-control, oligopolistic or cartel-driven monster which has been ripping us off without giving us the benefits that we ought to have had from a properly organized system. So one way or another, we need to drag the electricity industry back into the mainstream of a more people-centered, a less unequal New Zealand economy. 
And there's a number of different ways you could do it. I mean, it's not, it's not that there is a single solution and I can't offer you just one magic bullet. The first thing to do is to recognize the problem and systematically set about fixing, well, actually problems, plurals, and set about fixing them. Uh, and so there's a number of specifics that you can start with. One of them is we've got to break up the gene tailor. So we, we can't, this integration of generation and retail has been absolutely fatal to the po other possibilities for competitive retail. Uh, which in other sectors has been really, you know, quite quite good for ordinary people. For example, the competition in telecommunications, the, 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 the competing mobile phone companies and so on, have brought us a whole wealth of new technology and access to stuff. Um, and that's because that's a competitive sector, whereas electricity is not. Um, but by by breaking the, gen the generation away from retail, we could at least open the way for a bit more creative and uh, you know, re competitively oriented retail action. Uh, second thing we need to do is, one way or another, get the pricing behaviour under control. And uh, you know, the, the, there's obviously a temptation to say let's renationalise the generators and return the lines companies to local democratic accountability. In other words, let's wind the clock back to the structure we used to have. And I think there's there is a strong argument for doing that, but there are a lot of problems because winding the clock back is not just a simple matter of the stroke of a pen. It, it involves a huge number of vested interests and established positions and and so on that you have to tackle. And so it, it is worth thinking about other ways of going. One of those ways would be to say, well, there are real benefits to having integration of generation. You know, in other words, to run all the company, the country's big hydro, geothermal, and thermal plants on an integrated basis with just one organization in control and with a, with a social motivation, not a pure profit one. And in, in theory, uh, you could go a long way down that track by actually privatizing the lot under a single owner rather than a whole bunch of cartel uh, guys and then putting a proper regulator in charge of it. In other words, rather than nationalizing and having the state give it a non-profit objective of, of simply providing an essential service. You could imagine um, putting it in the hands of a private owner uh, with a guarantee of a reasonable, a fair rate of return on the, on, on, on the assets, uh, but under very strong regulated control. That's how they do it in the United States, for example. They, they have public utility commissions that's, that, that stand over the pricing behaviour of the privately owned electricity utilities. I don't but personally think that's an attractive option. I would personally go for the uh, the renationalization assertion of control. But I would, if, if I was going that way, I would want to be very, very sure that the opportunity for ordinary individual New Zealanders, householders and farmers particularly, to get into the generation game on a, you know, a fair, open, equitable basis on a level playing field to enable you to actually put a solar panel on your roof and sell the electricity back on a fair on fair terms into the system, for a farmer to put a, a, a small wind fire farm up the back and sell the electricity out into the system on a fair basis, I would want that to be kept really wide open. And so I wouldn't be going back to a purely monopolistic, totally centrally controlled system. Uh, beyond that, there are there are a lot of things that that we can we can do um, at the local level. The local lines networks used to, they used to be the supply authorities, and they control the lines to your house. But they are barred by legislation from the neoliberal era 
from being players on the generation side, which means that the the organisations in your local community that are best equipped, really, to help uh, ordinary householders and farmers get into small-scale renewable generation are barred from doing so. And yet they have the, the, finance, the balance sheets that could actually underwrite a great deal of distributed renewable generation. And they barred from that simply by the neoliberal reform package. And so I would want to break that lines energy split as well. This is just the start of a long list, though. I mean, it's a big debate, and it's one that uh, needs to be had. It's not happening. Hmm? It doesn't see, appear to be happening. Oh, it's not happening at the moment. No, there's no will. There. The government is, is, is sitting there with the dividends rolling in and doesn't want to touch the thing with a barge pole because, you know, tackling the current electricity industry is, is tackling a monster. These are These are big, powerful companies with legions of lawyers and consultants at their command with international um, con- connections. They, they can eyeball government to a standstill when it comes to lobbying, court cases, and, and all of that. Um, so politicians are quite genuinely scared, witless, at the prospect of taking on the big industry and the interests. <laughs> now, I have to sympathise with them, really. Well, it yeah, requires yeah. us to get on our hind, hind horse and, and, and start electing politicians who'll stand up to these guys. They put us in this position as a politician. Was political, well, political decisions have put us into this position. Yeah, well, indeed, it's our parliament that's put us in this position. The, uh, you can't blame the companies, given monopoly power and an unfettered opportunity to use it. You can't blame them for exercising it. If there was and, uh, real regulation, the price of electricity, would some of these companies be willing to sell back to the government because they weren't making as big a profit as they anticipated? Um, you mean sell the assets back to the government? If they had to actually, if the price of electricity is regulated, so they couldn't make the giant. Oh, yeah. If the price of electricity were properly regulated, the assets would be worth a fraction of the current value because, they, I mean, they've been written up um, massively over the years. Billions and billions and billions of dollars have been written into the books of the generators and the, and the lines companies simply on the basis that they can raise their prices, raise their margins, raise their profits, and then discount that to what's called a fair value, and then they write that into their balance sheets. And the, the regulators have allowed them to do that. They, um, the, the, well, they're not regulators at all, really. They're just rubber stamps for, the, for this process. If we were to uh, bring the electricity price down to what is a sustainable but much lower level, um, the, the assets would lose their value. Um, and so there would be quite a lot of whinging. Well, maybe it'd be an opportunity to take them back. Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, before... Before you, that's what happened to the railway lines, actually. You have to think about how we would renationalize them. Yeah, the railways is a good, good case. Uh, the ra- we got the railways back for a probably, well, I think rather, rather a high price, but an acceptable price, basically, because uh, for two decades they'd been asset stripped uh, by the looters. And so what was left was a, a very degraded system, um, which, was, which was a failing business. And, and it, it, you know, essentially railways is classically one of the infrastructure businesses that, if it's run at an efficient level, will tend to run at a loss. We need, That's why the state has a role there. 
if we need basic infrastructure rebuild, can we afford it? And which is more important to young people, to be free of debt or to have a resilient basic infrastructure for things like water, power, and, and transport in the future? Well, I mean, those are two questions. The answers are respectively yes, and no young person should have to face that choice. In other words, both is the answer. And if we don't have a, a, a government and a policy environment that pursues both and pursues them effectively, um, we're, we're not doing as well as we could. Every time we require something of the government, the government says we can't afford it because we don't want to increase debt. And I wonder if uh, delaying rebuilding infrastructure and caring for infrastructure isn't more cost to the economy in the long run than going to debt. Yeah, well, uh, that brings me back to the neoliberal ideologues of the 1980s. Those guys... Um, but the government still says it. Uh, no, I mean, those, what, what happened with the neoliberal period, this is Rogenomics and Ruthenasia, uh, was that they passed a series of laws through the New Zealand Parliament, which I call the Iron Cage. It's a very, very tightly constraining set of laws that prevents the New Zealand government from doing sensible things. Um, because the primary interest of the neoliberal program was to limit the state, to shrink government, to get government back out of the economy. And so one of the, th one of the laws that they've passed, part of this iron cage, is the, was called the Fiscal Responsibility Act, and it's now part of the Public Finance Act, it's Section 26G, the Public Finance Act. And let me, let me read you the opening words of the first principle of responsible fiscal management which is in the statute book and is binding on the Minister of Finance as a result. The first principle of responsibility fiscal management is reducing total government debt. Baldly stated, the, the, the duty of the minister is to reduce debt. That is his statutory responsibility. And until we actually start getting that sort of rubbish out of our statute book and start overturning the legislation that ties the government's hands. We're going to keep on getting um, economically stupid answers like we can't afford to do this. We can afford to do it. You're concerned with climate change and uh, environmental overshoot. Mm. Um, is a consumer market model the best way to deal with a non-carbon future. Um, uh, should, it, well, should, it, should the, the big thing be a carbon market, or should we consider regulation and carbon taxes as well? Well, I, I, it's not an either-or situation. I think it's uh, it's really important to go back to where I started, the New Zealand that I grew up in. Uh, you know, we spent a hundred years as a, we were a settler society, and so this was a, a white settler construction. Um, but it's not one that we can, uh, you know, deny is open to ownership for all. Uh, it's called a mixed economy, and it, it says over some range of activities, the competitive private marketplace is hugely constructive and it needs to be preserved and developed. Over another set of activities, the collective interest is best pursued through collective action. And so you need a mix. You need not just a consumer market as a general answer. You need uh, a competitive consumer market for it, where individuals can thrive at one on one side and harnessed with it, in parallel with it, you need a properly organised collective 
sector, both at local and, and, and national level, that engages both in regulation and in active participation in economic activity. That's, it's called the mixed economy. We ran it very successfully for several decades in New Zealand until the evangelists of neoliberalism arrived. Um, and we're now sitting among the wreckage. Now, this government has more popularity and political power than perhaps any government since the Labour government in the 1930s and 40s, as far as popularity and also dominance of Parliament. Yeah, how come um, they can't build or rebuild public infrastructures for such things as power, electricity, uh, transport, and health and education to fill the public needs for the present and the future. Why can't they do that? Well, I mean, there's a whole number of reasons why. Um, the first is fear. Um, too many of our politicians these days are motivated by the focus groups and the desire to get re-elected and the, and the fear that something they do in the public interest will actually lose them an election. Um, and it is possible, for example, that imposing decent carbon taxes on the New Zealand economy would lose you an election. It's possible that imposing a capital gains tax would have lost Labor the 2020 election. You can't say for sure. But the fear of that happening makes politicians back away from taking on any of the really big, ugly vested interests that New Zealand now has a large number of. It's just called, this is called the process of capture. It means that large business has far too much influence over uh, over our politicians, um, and they are far too frightened of it. But that's partly because they don't ultimately have faith in ordinary New Zealand voters to <laughs> to bring about a parliament that will tackle these things effectively. Uh, now, I, I personally would like to see them move a great deal more radically than they have been prepared to, but you've got to respect the political calculus that they have undertaken. The second thing you need to remember is that iron cage of statute. They're locked into uh, a set of legal limits on what government is, is allowed to do by the law. And, uh, you know, basically we need the parliament to set about getting rid of some of the sillier bits of legislation that are preventing the government from stepping out and dealing with, for example, climate change properly on our behalf. And then, um, and then thirdly, I think you do need to understand that for three decades since the neoliberal reforms, the New Zealand state sector has become populated by uh, individuals who have been acclimatised into, acculturated into the neoliberal way of thinking about the world. So that our entire public sector, when it comes to giving official advice to the ministers, <laughs> is very, very prone to think about the issues from a neoliberal point of view uh, and if they were to come up with the sort of recommendations that don't tackle the big stuff. Uh, and, you know, that's just part of the course, I'm afraid. Um, so I would want to retrofit quite a bit of the government sector uh, with a more grassroots uh, and common sense uh, set of ideas. But I don't, I'm not holding my breath because I don't have the power to do that. How do you change the both direction. I guess we have to hope that uh, we can fix the democratic deficit and uh, move toward a, a better future. Don't we? I would love to. I would love to think we can do that. 
insofar as the research I do on electricity contributes in some tiny way towards getting an informed public ready to uh, support radical action, I'll feel that I've done, you know, something Thanks worth a lot. Thanks a lot for that, Jeff. Okay. Many thanks. Bye. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.